1: Days passed when I went to either an interim pastorate on a weekend or went to substitute for uh, someone, often in an interim pastorate. The most notable thing that happened was not with me, but with my uh, long-term colleague, Dr. Tom Urry. This is a a brief story, but it's a a preacher's great fear to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Dr. Curtis Vaughn was interim pastor at Vernon, Texas. Uh, He subscribed Tom to go to preach for him on a Sunday morning. Dr. Urey, as was wont, uh, went fast to East Texas, to Mount Vernon. He arrived there, went to the filling station, and uh, began talking with the attendant, said, I'm going to preach here for uh, the interim pastor this morning. And The attendant said, well, I go to church there. We don't have an interim pastor. (laughs) So Tom got on the phone, made a quick phone call, and found out that he was in Mount Vernon, not Vernon. Those are two different places. And he had uh, about two hours before the morning service. So he told them, I will be there. And he got in his uh, big old long boat car and began whirring across North Texas. If you know the road down through Sherman and so on. He actually made it there for the 11 o'clock service. He made a mistake, he told what he did from the pulpit. And sitting out in the audience was a DPS patrolman. (laughs) And after the service, the uh, officer came up, met Tom and said, uh, by my calculation, you were doing over 100 miles an hour on average. To which Uri confessed, yes, I did. Being the good Baptist the patrolman was, he did not cite him, but gave him a stern warning. So I'm hoping I'm in the right place this morning. I've already uh, done this once today, so forgive me if my mind wanders. Our passage is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eight, verses five through 17. And if you have your Bible, you can look there. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the scripture. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This chapter begins with no condemnation. It proceeds with no accusation and it ends with no separation. Paul has been speaking of those who are justified, the blessings that come to them. In chapter seven, he speaks of the struggle of the believer with the law. In Romans seven, he uses the word I 51 times. In his soliloquy about his uh, chaos in keeping the law of God in his mind, but doing the will of his flesh, he never mentions one time the word spirit. But in chapter 8, he says spirit 22 times. And if you look in your uh, translation you'll notice that spirit is capitalized in nearly every instance, except perhaps in verses 15 and 16. Uh, It's clear that in verse 16, when he says our spirit, it's lowercase human spirit. But uh, many, including myself, think that all the other uses are to be capitalized. This is a reference to not human spirit, but to the Spirit of God. Now, Baptists aren't too keen on Spirit. I have a little book entitled The Shy Member of the Trinity, and it must have been a Baptist who wrote that because about the only time we have talked about Spirit is something that falls into excess. We have cycles of gifts of the spirit kinds of things and when those happen there are conferences and people write a few more small books and uh, preachers get invited to speak at these kinds of conferences to head off something that's untoward, speaking in tongues or Pentecostal outbreakings We have not been keen to describe the Spirit of God. So one of the things I want to try to do today is to show how the Spirit of God is in fact the very foundation of being a Christian. That you cannot be a Christian unless you know the Spirit of God. That you do not live your life under your own steam, under your own uh, power, but in the power of the Spirit of God. In this uh, section of the first 17 verses of chapter 8, he speaks of the Spirit as the one who liberates us from the rule of sin and death. Then he describes the spirit as our empowering, our uh, enabling to defeat the mind of the flesh, the power of sin in our lives. And then he goes on to say that by the indwelling spirit we also have fellowship with God and Christ. The indwelling of the Godhead is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And he closes by describing how the Spirit makes us into one family. We are adopted into God's family by the work of the Spirit. For Paul, the distinction between the Father the Son, and the Spirit is almost blurred. They are distinct, but in our lives, the coming of the Spirit is also the coming of the Father and of the Son. Apart from the Spirit, there's no such thing as a Christian. So let me try to... uh, unpack each one of these ideas. The first is the spirit enabling to defeat the power of the flesh. This is verses 5 through 8. There are two phrases that occur throughout these verses. After the flesh, verses 4 and 5, after the spirit, in verses four and five. Then things of the flesh, things of the spirit, the mind of the flesh, in the spirit, in the flesh. The term flesh is not just physicality, the physical body. It is a power associated with human beings, but it is the power of the lower human nature. It resides in and with each one of us. He describes it with a strange phrase, the mind of the flesh. That is, there is a leaning, a uh, guidance, a motivation, that comes from the lower side of human nature. And it can break out and rule the life of a person. The word mind has uh, a little Greek root in it, friend, P-H-R-E-N, which is a word for the top of the brain. So if you go to a phrenologist, that person rubs their fingers over the wrinkles in your head, I guess to determine what you're thinking. So to be minded is to take a studied decision to be one way. We don't use the word much anymore. But I grew up with my mother saying, Bruce, mind the door. And she did not mean, I want you to think about that door. She meant set your attention on that door and do something about it. So the mind of the flesh is the lower nature overcoming and ruining your life. One of my uh, favorite movie scenes is Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman in Young Frankenstein, or however you want to say it. Uh, Some of you probably know this plot, but I'm going to remind you of it. The, uh, The mad doctor Friedrich Frankenstein is going to create and revive a person. And he has his able assistant, Igor, and he goes with Igor and steals a carcass. Now all they need is a brain. So Igor is sent to the lab to secure the brain of a saintly wonderful man named Hans Delbruck. Igor goes into the lab, gets the brain and suddenly sees his image reflected, scares him and he drops the bottle and ruins the brain. So he picks up a second brain, carries it back to the mad doctor and They build the monster. Well, you know what happens. The monster runs amok, starts destroying everything, and the mad doctor finally decides he's got the wrong mind. So he he gets hold of Igor and says, What brain did you get? And he said, Well, I got a different one. And then he says, What was the name of that brain? And he said, Abby? Abby? What was his full name? It was Abby Normal. <laughs> you put abnormal brain into this man's head? Yes bad to have a wrong mind. You know this week I've heard several people ask how could anyone do such a thing? You put whatever you want to after the thing, whether it's killing or whatever else it is. We cannot accept the fact that a person can be ruled by the sinful nature. The Spirit of God enables us to defeat the abnormal way of thinking. It is the heart of Christian decision-making. It is the moral compass of your life Helps you to act the way you're supposed to. Paul is very clear. If you have a mind dominated by the flesh, it can absolutely destroy you. It ends in death. It's an analysis of a world that does not know the Lord. In other words, their heads are not screwed on straight. Bad things happen, and that is his warning, that we should mine the Spirit of God in our lives. In the second place, he makes a rather astonishing statement in verses 9 through 11. By the indwelling of the Spirit, we have also the indwelling of Christ. Notice uh, those three verses and what he says in succession. The Spirit of God indwelling, having the Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus, indwelling, There are people who teach that you become a Christian and then subsequently, in a second experience, you receive the Spirit of God. And there are signs that you make this receiving. Paul's very clear. If you do not have the Spirit of God, You don't belong to the Lord you're not a Christian the gift of the Spirit is not some secondary Christian idea it is the primary experience of coming to know Christ and I love this this word dwelling it's the word for living somewhere tearing not just as a guest but for taking up an abode to live in the presence of Christ and Christ lives in your presence. The American Bible Society has a little booklet on translation of the scripture and cites the story of an Englishman who went to a parish church on Sunday morning and read from the uh, church's Bible, which was a New English Bible, and read verse 10, which says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not a Christian, which is a bit of a paraphrase, But it's dead on the meaning. And he realized in reading that verse, I am not a Christian. He'd just gone to church, raised as an Anglican, read the Bible some, thought some Christian things. But it wasn't until he read that verse that he realized, I don't know the Lord. I am not a Christian. Uh, This idea harks back to the words of Jesus in uh, John chapter 14. There Jesus says that he goes away and he prepares a place for his disciples. That where he is, there they may be also. And he describes this place as many mansions in my father's house that's the king james rendering of it the word mansion is a bit misleading it's based on the latin word mansio which is a term used of an overnight stay a motel six if you will and they were placed in the Roman road system about every 15 or 20 miles, so that when you traveled during the day, you arrived at the mansion and you had a resting place. So the word itself means a resting place, an abiding place. Well, the surprise in John 14, is that in verse 23 Jesus also says the Father and I will come to you and make our abiding place with you same word but now it's not me going to the abiding place of God it is god coming to abide with me a dwelling with me and that's paul's language he does not use that word but he uses the same idea that the christian receives christ and christ remains with that believer and dwells with the believer and there's two sides to this. You are in Christ; that is, you belong to Him in faith. But the other side is very important. Christ is in you. And would it surprise you to know that that is Paul's favorite phrase? He uses it over a hundred and eighty times. Christ in you. The Spirit brings the indwelling of Christ. You're no longer by yourself. You have the Spirit of God in your life. And lastly, Paul underlines the fact that the Spirit adopts us into God's family. This is verses 12 through 17. What bulks large in this section are the terms for family. Verses 12 through 17. Brothers, sons, sonship, father, children, heirs, and co-heirs. The Spirit creates the family of God, and He does so in several ways. First, there is a family obligation. Our debt is no longer to the flesh, but it is a debt to the Spirit of life. We are debtors, to the Spirit. Our obligation is finally eternal life. Continuing to live in the Spirit is to receive eternal life. Then a family identification, verses 14 through 16. These are the evidences of being in the family. One, guided by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, that is, navigate their way through life, led by the Spirit, are members of the family. Under the control of the Spirit of God, you have a personal guide in life. Secondly, you're adopted by the Spirit. Not bondage, but the freedom of sonship. Adoption. The Jews did not adopt children. The Romans did. And they had a term which they used, whether it was a son or a daughter, and they called it sonship, we out see it. It's a word a little bit like our word fellowship. There are men and women who receive fellowships. In fact, I have not heard of a woman objecting to the word and thereby turning one down. It can cover both. And in Roman legal terminology, when this ceremony happened, it was called sonship. I notice Paul mentions also children as well as brothers. So he's not trying to make a distinction whether male or female. He is simply saying that there is this process by which you are brought in to the family of God. That is adoption. How do you know that you are adopted? Well, you can cry out the word Father, Abba, which is not a Greek word, it is not a Latin word, it is an Aramaic word, a Hebrew word. And it is the family term for a father. It's pretty close to our word, dad. It is an intimate speaking with one's father. When you're brought into the family of God, you receive full rights as those who are blood relatives. And uh, he has a, a nice view of the family. There is a firstborn of many brothers in the family. The firstborn is Christ Himself. And He receives full inheritance. And we come in, as it were, on His coattails. But we are also made heirs. And that's the last point that He makes family inheritance until the testator dies the full inheritance is not known that's law but in grace the full inheritance is now given to all the members of the family and we have the pledge the down payment of that inheritance So we are called co-heirs with Christ. The Spirit's signature in your life is the testimony that you belong to the Lord. And I like the way Paul says it in this chapter, that when we pray... The Spirit, together with us, makes a joint testimony, testifies together with us that we are the children of God. So it's not you just prying the door into the family treasure. The Spirit of God speaks with and on your behalf that you are a child of God. Now in this passage, there's a whole series of images that come to mind in the terms that Paul uses. Let me uh, underline them as I close. The Spirit is generator. Spirit of life means is life and gives life. He says the Spirit raises Christ and will raise believers from death. The Spirit is liberator. In verse 2, the Spirit has freed us from the rule of sin and death. The Spirit is companion, the mutual indwelling of Christ and the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit is undertaker. In verse 13, the deeds of the flesh are put to death by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is navigator. Believers are led by the Spirit. They walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit is counselor, verse 16. The testimony of the Spirit to us and with us that we are God's children. There's one word that's missing that I want to say a word about. It is not used by Paul. It's only used by Jesus and then in 1 John. It is the word paraclete, paracletos. It means one who appears on the behalf of another a mediator, an intercessor, a helper. In translations, it is translated counselor, helper, advocate, and famously in the King James Bible, comforter. Well, we might add some other terms like solicitor or barrister or advocate, but I found no instance in any translation or any commentator that uses the word that is proper lawyer. That's what it means. Tells you something about our dislike for lawyers. If I had put the word the lawyer of life in this sermon title, you would have thought, what in the world is he talking about? But in fact, the role, the proper role of the parakletos, all of these things that Paul describes, he comes in beside you in life, and helps you with the day-to-day of everything you do. We want to close this morning singing, I need thee every hour, and oh how we do, hymn 404. If you have uh, a decision you'd like to make publicly, I'll invite you to come when we stand and sing. The Lord has spoken to you in a special way. If you have even interest in uh, joining this fellowship of work, you come as we stand together and sing.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.